Hey, Science Nerds. Thanks for joining MRSA and watching our first ever episode of MRSA Podcast with Dr. Angie MacArthur. I just wanted to give a short disclaimer that my microphone quality wasn't the best at the time of recording. I'm sorry for the issue, but it has since been resolved, so it won't affect future podcasts. Nevertheless, we hope that you enjoy this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you in future episodes. Welcome to MRSA Podcasts, where we'll be exploring research in various science disciplines at McMaster University every other week to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders that it's fostering. I'll be your host, Alex, and I'd typically be joined with Nicole, but she wasn't able to be with us today, so I'm here with Corey instead. Hello, everyone. Super excited to be here, and thank you for joining us on the first episode of the MRSA podcast. We're so excited to have one of the most renowned bioinformaticians in Canada, an associate professor in bio biochemistry and biomedical sciences, and a member of the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for the Infectious Disease Research Center at McMaster, Dr. Andrew MacArthur. Thank you so much for joining us today and for helping us kick off our fir first podcast, Dr. MacArthur. Hi, guys. Uh, we'd just like to start off and ask if you could give our audience a rundown of how you actually got into bioinformatics and the research you're working on, and also how you had that motivation to transition from industry to academia. You bet. Uh, so I will admit to being a bit of a different prof. My career path is not linear at all. So my original training as an undergrad was in field ecology, uh, and my PhD was in deep sea oceanography. Spent a lot of time in submarines looking at hydrothermal rifts. Uh, but out of that came an interest to, to test whether things in the extreme deep were living fossils, uh, and that led to DNA technologies. Uh, and so uh, I went to the Smithsonian in the States to, to really look on the origin of animals and phylogeny and got interested in genomics. And at that time, if you did genomics, it was an infectious disease where it was really happening. Uh, so I ended up uh, moving to a place called the Marine Biological Lab to sequence the genome of this parasite called Giardia, a major diarrheal killer around the planet. Um, they really hired me because I was good at DNA sequencing. Uh, what they didn't know is that I was a self-taught programmer from, a, from childhood. Uh, and this was at the, you know, bioinformatics just starting and they didn't have the capacity to analyze their own data. And that's where my career took off, uh, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I ended up faculty there, uh, did a lot of African parasitology diseases um, and particularly work on the genomics uh, of say sleeping sickness, for example, where we did the lab work and the data side. I then, then left and had my own company for 10 years, a, a bioinformatics company working with government and academics and industry. Uh, and then 2014, uh, after quite a few years working on projects with McMaster, we came to agreement and I returned to academia to really lead uh, a global effort for surveillance of superbugs, uh, drugs that resist our antibiotic arsenal. I actually read somewhere that your grandfather was an intelligence officer in World War II who sort of decoded uh, Imperial Japanese uh, messages. Did that have any role to play in you coding in your childhood? Yeah, he was pretty subversive. I, you know, in retrospect, now understand some of the games he got us to as the kids came from that. Um, yeah, so my grandfather, you know, I, I see a direct parallel that some of the mathematics is even the same. Um, his job then was, you know, to build really powerful radios to detect uh, Imperial Japanese messages, but then he'd have to decode them. And then the hard part was deciding what to do with it. We essentially, that's really what my lab does. We're a surveillance lab, threat and surveillance, but we work on pathogens like drug resistance, MRSA or SARS, for example. We use genomics as our tool, so that's how we find it, but genomes are just a bunch of ACGs and Ts, so we have to work on the decoding and what it means. And then the hardest part is what do you do with that? How do you make the right decisions at a public health level? So I see a, a direct relationship from, from that, yeah. 
Perfect. Yeah, that sounds super amazing. Uh, we're just wondering if you can touch a little bit about what are some of maybe the current projects that's going on in your lab? Yeah, so, you know, our, our what we do, uh, the bulk is we really work at a global level around superbugs. Uh, we are losing antibiotics at an alarming rate. We're actually at risk of, you know, entering a pre-medicine age again, where we can't do hip replacement or chemotherapy or lung transplantation. And we're at a scrape on the playground could kill your kid because we're running out of antibiotics. There are hospitals that can't do hip replacement because they can't control infection. So we work with public health agencies and academics around the world. We run one of the largest databases and software suites for tracking the movement of genes and mutations that undermine the activity of antibiotics. Uh, and then we, uh, fortuitously, the summer before this pandemic, we, we, we were asked to work with our clinical colleagues on surveillance of respiratory viruses. Uh, if you come with a respiratory infection in a hospital, only about 70% of the viruses that could be causing the disease, we have a decent diagnostic tool. So we were designing genomic diagnostics and included with that were coronaviruses. So when we saw what was happening, uh, you know, uh, just over a year ago in the December of 2019, we pivoted and built some platforms to make it easier to capture coronavirus. And we were actually involved uh, in sequencing the first couple of patients in Canada, and particularly the genomic uh, verification that we've managed to culture them uh, at Sunnybrook, is once you have the virus in culture, you can start testing drugs and testing vaccines. Right now, uh, a huge amount of effort, we co-lead the Ontario Genomic Surveillance. So all the news is about the UK variant and the South Africa variant. So we build and we do that work. We're responsible for about a third of the positive cases in the province to figure out what the genetics of that infection is and whether it's a variant. So I guess now leading off of, uh, off of you being on Canada's front in, in the COVID response or Ontario's front especially. Um, and I know that this is probably been asked a dozen and a half times, but how did you get involved? You mentioned that you started developing a tool and that kind of, uh, it, it was initially meant for respiratory viruses and trying to target those 30% that, that couldn't be diagnosed. But how did you sort of segue into being in the position that you are now uh, tackling COVID? Yeah, so that, that almost comes back to the bigger question of why I quit my company and sold it and came back to academia. Um, McMaster, you mentioned, you know, we're a research intensive university, but there's also the McMaster attitude, which is there really aren't boundaries. Uh, and the infectious disease institute I'm in uh, is remarkable that a bioinformatician like me, who's really a computer jock, will be rubbing shoulders with drug discovery or medicinal chemists or frontline clinicians. Um, and so that allows us not only to think at a global level on how threats move around and how they evolve and what's the next threat, but also to keep our ear close to the ground what's happening in our neighborhood clinics and what the problems they deal with. And that's what really happened uh, the summer before this pandemic is that we had uh, a colleague from Sunnybrook Health Sciences who are really the Canada's leader in response with, with Mount Sinai to the pandemic. Um, they came to us and said, genomics is the future. We're gonna embed one of your, our people with you for a summer and then we wanna collaborate with you. Uh, and a lot of that collaboration was just listening to the clinicians and listening what was not working and thinking like engineers, what, what of that can we fix or make better? Um, and then uh, we knew when the virus came out and the pandemic started that genomic surveillance was going to be a large component. Canada, uh, since the first SARS, we invented the public health agency in Canada because of the first SARS pandemic. Uh, and then we moved to genomic technologies because it, we were responsible for Haiti and cholera broke out under our watch. And if we'd had genomics in place, we probably would have stopped it instead of now it kills a lot of people per year. 
So there's a bit of pride. Uh, Canada blew it a couple times, and this time we wanted to come out hard. And so we we are doing genomics before the, you know, McMaster is great. The other thing is before the government was ready to spend money, I told McMaster leadership, you know, we got to get started. We have to build genomics tools. We got to get ready. This is coming. And they just put the money down and got us started. We've recovered it all from the government. But not all institutions would do that. This is expensive work. So as a researcher, when you can turn your leadership and says, look, I have the students. I have the staff. We need to get started. This is critical for public health. Mac didn't even flinch. Uh, and that just put us ahead of the game. Perfect. And I know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to ask, I know that to, to conduct your genomic uh, surveillance, you have to sort of sequence every single positive case, every single positive uh, patient. And with every single SARS-CoV-2 genome, you have 28,000 bits of data in its genome. So how do you actually tackle the, the issue of storage and trying to, to compete against next generation sequencing and Kreider's law? Yeah, so, you know, Mac is also has a big sequencing core, uh, not only for pathogens and microbiomes, but human genetics. We have a cardiovascular genome sequencing project. Uh, essentially, you come in with heart disease into Hamilton Hospital, you get your genome sequenced. Um, but it wasn't designed for this. Uh, it was at a research scale. Uh, we had immediate issues. Uh, because I've been in industry, because when I came, I was industrial chair, I know a lot of people in the IT industry. I essentially made the calls immediately said like, this is going to hit and it's going to hit hard fast. I need help. And so right off the bat, um, Hewlett Packard sent us, you know, a $300,000 computer loaner, no questions asked. It, we had it installed in under 48 hours. Pure storage, which is a flash bait, high performance storage, sent us a loaner. Uh, in the end, Cisco just gave us a half million dollars worth of computers and just take this and use it. Um, the industrial component, again, it comes to being that Mac has these relationships and, and it's part of what my higher order job I always see is to get academics, industry and government to work together. And I've been doing that for five years. And so it paid off when, when things got really bad, I was able to make the, the, the phone calls and those places go in. Then money came from the government. So the sequencing facility here is really built for high throughput research. It's not designed for rapid outbreak turnaround. And so with money, we're able to buy new machines, develop new technology, hire new staff, and to pivot to be much more like a clinical diagnostics lab during the, the pandemic. Um, that will have long-term great consequences for what Mac can do. Um, so, but there, and then, you know, you talk about the samples. So uh, in Ontario, it's distributed. Public Health Ontario does about a third of the patients. And there's about 30 to 40 other healthcare centers that do the testing. So you have to coordinate the collection of all those samples from all those places, including material transfer agreements, ethics agreements, uh, get the material shipped, the sequence. And so we actually have a master's of biomedical discovery and commercialization student who's running all of that uh, on the province. It's logistically extremely difficult. Um, Ontario's weird. Uh, most of the provinces, it's just done by the central public health agency. But Ontario, because of size, academics and public health have always worked really closely together. And we were pretty fast. And I highlight McMaster, but the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research has also been a huge player. They just sort of set aside normal work and, and got to work. Uh, in fact, working overtime over Christmas because of these new variants. So um, it's part because universities have this expertise. It's students that are doing 90% of this work. Uh, and so uh, public health doesn't have access to that young talent. And so universities can put out the call and leverage our entire community to, to fight this. So we were ready. It was the time. It's, it's our mission as our institute to do this. Uh, and we look at AMR, drug resistance, as a much bigger pandemic. We're already fighting and unfortunately losing still. This one we're fighting and starting to win. So students are your uh, free labor behind all of this. 
Yeah, well, so it's a, it's a fourth year BDC undergraduate who's working part-time that at one point had sequenced 50% of the genomes in Ontario and 20% in Canada. Um, I take great pride that my undergrads are involved in all this as well as my grad students. I think you start early and you, you give them lots of responsibilities, they can do it. Okay, so I guess the next part we kind of wanted to talk about is going back to the idea you talked about how you, when you first came into research, you were dealing with antibiotic resistance and dealing with those superbugs. So we're just wondering with this experience you have with COVID-19 response, how do you envision that might possibly integrate into your AMR research in the future? Yeah, there's a couple things. One, um, the global community of bioinformaticians and genomicists in infectious disease is not particularly large. And generally speaking, we all were aware of each other and occasionally had interacted. Uh, now it's like a, a fraternity of men and women that know each other extremely well and know each other's students. Uh, it is a global collaboration. So there is a, both a nationally and internationally just a strengthening of our capacity and, and our ability. Uh, and again, young students coming up at the, you know, Simon Fraser or Dalhousie right, that are, are part of this. Um, so the options now for students are so much better because you know, if I have an undergrad that comes up and says they want to do in this, well, I, I don't just know people in Canada now, I know New Zealand, Germany, England, India, you name it. Um, the other thing is, is some serious gaps. So Canada's always had a problem with data sharing, both on our legislative front and just sort of historical policy. And that has actually done a considerable amount of harm. Uh, even to this day, I don't get all the data I need. And this pandemic is really putting a spotlight on that. And I really see some changes. So it's actually going to make genomic surveillance easier because I can get the data. As well, Canada's pretty good at academics and government collaborating, but there are always some barriers. Well, the gloves are off. There are no barriers anymore. So I can see us working together even more closely on other threats. Um, never mind infectious. I can see now once those barriers are down, it would be around heart disease and you know social determinants of health as well. Um, and so, and then the last is the genomics revolution. It's been slow to take. Canada has been a, a leader on some fronts, but we haven't done it systematically. So if I wanted to tell you, you know, which genes are the most threatening in Canada for say staph infections, I couldn't tell you that now because it's hard to coordinate that study. Well, we just coordinate that study every 12 hours now. So I think the, the doors to say is like, how dangerous is staph in Canada? Has the new gene that really concerns us all made it to our borders or not? Instead of waiting two years to find out by accident, we'll, we'll actually go and look. So I think there'll be a lot of, of changes. I think for students, the, the boundary between public service and academia will be very blurry now, which is a good thing. I think it's actually really interesting. You mentioned that undergrads themselves, they're up and coming there. They're, they played a role in sequencing SARS-CoV-2 in your lab uh, when the entire pandemic started breaking out in, in Canada, especially. Uh, and I, I was actually wondering if you could sort of elaborate on undergraduate opportunities to actually get deeper into bioinformatics. So for students who are interested in the field, what path would you recommend that they take? Yeah, so what I like about McMaster's training model, and it's not just health science, it's science, it's, you know, kin, uh, they're all do this, um, is we have a strong emphasis on research thesis, right? Uh, 15 units in, in our program, half your year. Um, there are many universities in Canada where you don't, you graduate and you haven't had any really appreciable research experience. Uh, and I think that's a great thing at McMaster. Um, I like to start second or third year. Corey started in third year in my group. Um, and the idea is, you know, we're going to steal some of them for graduate school for sure, um, but we're going to send them off to, to other great places. Um, 
the challenge course right now is that you know we're, we're semi-closed. Under, undergraduates having a hard time getting to the bench. So this has been a really tough year for research thesis. I'm hoping next should be better. Bioinformatics, when I came, was pretty bleak. Uh, there were, you know, we have Brian Golding in biology who's world famous, but you know, he can only teach so many students. Uh, it has increased considerably. Uh, we still only offer a small number of courses, but I really expect that's gonna start to change dramatically. Um, but what's really changed it for a while, like, I, oh, MacArthur's the bioinformatics shop and the, every single undergrad interest would come to my lab. Because of the spread of genomics techniques, the number of labs that actually need bioinformatics has diversified. So you might want to work on, you know, metabolic diseases or type 2 diabetes. Well, they're doing RNA-seq and genomic transcription analysis and they need bioinformatics skilled people. You might be working on cancer. Well, we routinely sequence, you know, uh, stem cells to understand the genetic underpinnings of cancer. Uh, we got a big group that's working on, you know, pollution and environmental interactions, which is mediated by microbes. So you know how to look at microbiome in the natural environment. So I think you, it's not so, like if you truly say, I want to be a programmer and a lifelong bioinformatician, then, you know, th there's a handful of labs that you can go to do that. Um, but if bioinformatics is something you want to add to your toolkit to expand upon your existing research question, uh, you should always ask the lab that says, I really like the research you do. By the way, do you have a genomics or bioinformatics component to it? You'd be surprised. Most of them do. And you mentioned there as well, uh, how undergrads at Mac, especially they, they, they have an interest in bioinformatics. They rush to the MacArthur lab because they know that's where all the exciting uh, bioinformatician research is, is being conducted. So sort of like for our audience themselves, because we're hoping that first years and second years that are interested in doing their thesis yep. in the future, what kind of uh, experience and skills do you actually look for in, in an undergraduate that's applying to work underneath you? Yeah, so um, not every prof's the same on this. Um, so uh, it doesn't matter if you come into my lab as a first, second, third, fourth year undergrad, as a master's student, a PhD, or even a postdoc, many of them come in with no skills whatsoever. Uh, they're domain experts. I'm interested in you because you know biochemistry or you know medicine or you know clinical epidemiology, and you're looking to add. It's a tiny number of students that come in with some pre-design, you know, they know some programming and they wanna become programmers. Um, so I really recruit on potential why the student? I'll be really honest. I can tell a student who's really just using me to get an item on their CV for their med school application. That's usually pretty obvious. Um, but as a student has a sincere interest, uh, even though they might still be thinking of medicine, they really have a sincere interest in trying out research. Uh, my PhD student is almost done. When I met her, she, medicine was it. Uh, it's not till she did her thesis with me that she realized, oh my God, I really like this research stuff. I, maybe I'll reconsider my path in life. Um, others, honestly, after a year in my lab said, I'm pretty sure I want to go to medicine. I, I don't want to ever do this again. It's too hard. Um, but I, I pick students on their potential and where they want to go. And you got to remember, I'm a commercialization guy. We do a lot of that. So some students are sort of professional bound medicine, dentistry and the rest. And they're adding this component of their, to their training. Others are research bound. And so they're really, they, and some have come through their intentions to work on cancer or Alzheimer's, but they want to understand this, this technology to apply it. But many are going into industry or public health service and data science is increasingly of value for them. And we try to tailor the training around where those students want to go um, and, and work. And the one thing I always try to do, not always successfully, but I try to partner each student with an outside agency. Uh, so Corey, I'll point an example. She was partnered with an environmental toxicology lab. Um, and others have been public with Public Health Canada or a company, for example. So students can see what science is like outside of academia. Uh, and get a sense of what they might want to do. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I guess just 
on top of that, I just wanted to ask if you can highlight just maybe a few projects that students uh, can potentially take on in your lab. So then we get an idea of for students of what to expect kind of. Yeah, and so again, motivation students. So this year, obviously a little different. We're doing a thesis quite different, but I can pick last year, we had a few. Um, we had a thesis student who was uh, only the third one to really declare he wanted to be a bioinformatician for life. Uh, and so his thesis was really designed around programming. That's what he wanted to learn. And so we, we, and I have engineers in my lab, we talk about like, what do they have to learn? Uh, a previous student, Tammy, the same thing. She said, I'm done this bench work stuff. I want to be a bioinformatician. So we set up a thesis where we said, well, these are the technical skills a bioinformatician should have. Uh, and she happened to work around metagenomics on those skills. Other students have come in and said, I'm just interested in this machine learning and what it is. I actually don't even care what kind of data. I just want to learn machine learning. So we had Armin last year who worked around natural language processing. Like, I'm tired of manually reading 10,000 papers to fill my database. Can we write an algorithm to do it for me? Um, and so that's what he learned. Um, others were very much more bench-based. So we had a thesis student that was really cancer in medicine, and she's now at um, Howard University in medicine. Um, where she partnered with the Stem Cell Institute and their issues is like, well, how can we design and execute smart RNA-seq experiments and how do you do these analysis? So she went back and forth between the two labs doing the bench work and the informatics work. Um, it really varies uh, on the students. Um, and there's sort of a depth. We always start with bio-curation. How do you take knowledge and you turn it into algorithms? Everyone in the group, Corey, you're doing some right now. Everybody in the group does this um, because that's the baseline. If you can't take knowledge and make an algorithm in it, then you can't do our living. Then some students will use those algorithms to analyze data from the clinic or data from public health. Um, and so it's really the analysis that they're interested in. Other students want to make new algorithms, right? So they become programmers because that's their challenge. And then a handful really move into analytics. Uh, the challenge I would say as an instructor is that undergrads are very interested and keen and, and really working hard to move into machine learning. But machine learning projects require massive data sets and they're hard to acquire. And so, and the learning curve is pretty brutal. So it, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it well with undergraduates. It's different to give it to a master's student who literally spends 10 hours a day working on the problem with no classes. Uh, whereas asking an undergraduate to master machine learning and a trillion data point data set while they're balancing eight other classes. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. We now have the Mac Data Institute and I'm expecting a lot of good content to come out of that institute to really build that training. For sure, that sounds amazing. Um, and just because you mentioned about bio-curation, so I was wondering if you could just basically tell the audience what that is, and also if you can touch, touch on a little bit uh, about how this might relate to the highly uh, cited Comprehensive Antibiotic Resistance Database, or CARD. Yeah, so bio-curation is a sub-discipline, not particularly old. It's how you build databases. So, uh, the end product is if there's say there's in Indonesia, someone has a patient that does not respond to drug and they culture that bacteria and sequence its genome because they want to understand why the drug is failing. When they have that genome sequence, they can go to our website card and paste in that sequence or load it. And card will analyze it and tell you exactly which mutations and genes that genome has that are causing the drug failure and why and what mechanisms in particular help them to identify gaps, hopefully a drug that they can use. So how do you build a website? that can do that. Uh, that's what biocuration is. So uh, if there's a gene, a beta-lactamase, that say that it metabolizes a commonly used clinical drug, there will be 100 papers published in the scientific literature about that uh, enzyme and how it does its job and how efficient it is against every antibiotic. Biocuration is how you take that scientific knowledge 
and you convert it to an algorithm. So when it sees that raw genome from Indonesia, it will accurately say, hey, you've got this beta-lactamase and this drug will no longer work. Um, so there are many databases out there. Uh, many of them are automated. They just grab available sequences from papers and put them in. CARD is a bit different. We do true biocuration in that nothing enters the database without an expert looking at it. And that's often an undergraduate. Uh, I always have great pride at meetings and say, you know, I'm glad you really enjoyed CARD. It was undergrads that built that thing, right? And you can lie on. But it means when CARD says, hey, you've got this gene, that that's what's causing your problem. It's not only uh, algorithms, but it means an expert with biochemistry training or microbiology training looked at the quality of the data and made some smart decisions. So that builds trust. Um, the challenge is, you know, there's a thousand papers a month to look at. Um, and so we only look at a tiny fraction that are sort of high value. And so that's why we now have uh, working in AI trying to get algorithms to get other information out of the papers. We'll never get rid of that expert biocuration. Um, but essentially, to make a reliable prediction from, a, say, a clinical sample, all the biocurators uh, build that. Underneath that are the computer scientists that actually design the systems that you can biocurate into. How do you do this? And how do you build a database based on biocuration? Um, that stuff gets a little gnarly. And we have a computer engineer to do that kind of stuff. A lot of graph, graph, uh, graph theory and, and fun stuff that you know, takes me days to remember how to do. That's great. Um, I, I was actually going off of Corey's point and, and how you use CARD in your lab. I was actually wondering if you see any role in CARD, especially post-COVID, in facilitating the antibiotic response. I'm assuming because, uh, and I, I think you did mention this in, in a previous interview, uh, you discussed how the main therapeutic intervention for, for patients with COVID was to sort of just treat them with antibiotics that prevented any further lung uh, infection, just because it would have, there's nothing else. There's no other therapeutic option that they could use. Yeah. Um, and with that, of course, there's the threat of antibiotic resistance. Um, so I was wondering if you could sort of discuss what you anticipate post-COVID in terms of lung infections and also uh, how you think CARD might facilitate uh, a transition in that? Yeah, this is uh, pretty scary, to be perfectly honest. Um, when you have a respiratory lung infection that you cannot clear, which is definitely the case here, like you can't clear it fast enough to, to, to self-heal, um, a lot of people die of secondary bacterial infections. And so if you're in COVID and you're in the ICU, and, and a lot of it's medical device, so they put that ventilator in, now you're, you've got a bacterial issue of biofilming. The most common uh, one we concern is a bug called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Uh, Pseudomonas itself kills cystic fibrosis patients at a high level, and every year it defeats another drug class. Uh, it's such a running battle. So if you have no method, meds, medicine to treat COVID, which we really don't, um, you really just got to hang on and hope for self-heal and use every trick you can to treat symptoms, uh, but you cannot tolerate a secondary infection. So we do use a lot of antibiotics and there's no doubt we're gonna breed new lung uh, resistance. So we're worried about a sort of a post COVID wave of drug resistant lung infections who for many patients will be not that big a deal but if you got cystic fibrosis or related issues are gonna be extremely dangerous and they transmit well, right? Because you cough and out comes the bacteria. Um, so we're taking a target approach. We've always had a laser vision on Pseudomonas. It's a, you know, a, a personal enemy of the lab, I guess you'd say it, because we, we hear from the hospital, patients dying of it. Um, we're gonna have to focus, there's gonna be a lot of sequencing studies to say, well, what just changed between pre and post COVID in these bacterial genomes? And then every time a patient gets a lung infection that we lose, we can't feed, we're gonna be sequencing the genomes to find like, is this a post COVID effect? Um, 
our goal there is to provide the underlying knowledge. What's the genetic underpinnings of this new resistance? And then you hand that to drug discovery folks who look ways to shut down that resistance. Um, we're likely not going to find many more new antibiotics. It's going to become really rare. But there's a glimmer of hope that these new compounds that actually you can use a drug to shut off resistance so you can go back to your old antibiotic. Um, so Jerry, right here, there's a very dangerous gene called NDM1 that takes out one of our last two drugs of last resort. He found a compound that shuts that resistance gene off so you can go back to your old drugs. Uh, we need genetic data. These are genetically targeted drugs. Uh, so that's what we're building. We're building those resources. We're expecting a lot of work on the respiratory front. For sure. And then um, I'm just wondering, post-COVID, and say if we have another pandemic that hits us in the future, how do you think maybe we can prepare better for that in terms of genomic technologies or all those things? Yeah, I think it, there's a lot of interesting parts. So I would highlight the, the vaccines we're using now. There's many vaccines that are going to roll out from many different approaches, but the first two, Pfizer and Moderna, are these messenger RNA vaccines. This is the benefit of 10 years of research of trying to actually build vaccines to fight cancer. Um, but they are driven by the genetic code. Uh, all the, what we're learning out of this, they're remarkably safe uh, and they're remarkably effective. But more so than what we're doing now with the variants, if you get a variant, you can retool that vaccine under three weeks uh, to change for the variant. Um, all this is driven by genomic data. And so because we've used genomics so much, what you're gonna see is an investment of all these orphan diseases, particularly African disease, uh, near and dear to my heart, that's not had enough attention. Suddenly genomic technology will come down like a hammer because the whole goal is we can make an mRNA vaccine uh, to it. So we actually might beat a lot more foes. We're not gonna beat like HIV or, or TB or malaria. Those are a lot harder. Um, but this will be the change. And then I think overall, there was already a transition in Canada using genomics more and more, but it's just gonna become a greater capacity. So the market demand for graduates that have either been at the bench in genomics or have been at the computer with the data is, is gonna be huge. Uh, we're already talking about that McMaster's, how are we gonna make these people, right? So, you know, it's universities that train the next generation and the demand's gonna be massive. We're already getting asked weekly by public health agencies, who's ready, who can we hire? Um, so we are starting to think about how are we going to train this. Um, there's a new, uh, you know, institute, the Nexus for Global Pandemic Preparedness. Uh, there will be a big training component in there. Um, and I actually see training will change. It won't be just the university. We'll do it hand in hand with the public health agencies. We already do that with our Braley fellows who spend half the time here and half the time in public health Ontario. Uh, I just see that it's going to change. And then there'll be all the cholerias. If people realize that all that human genetic sequencing that looked at cardiovascular, well, maybe we should do more of it to understand schizophrenia, right? Or understand type two diabetes. There's going to be a lot of benefit. I look at it like a space program thing. We did the space program on purpose, and then there was a lot of fantastic spin-off technologies. This one we didn't do on purpose, but there's going to be a lot of great spin-off knowledge and technology. Definitely. And, and I love the fact that you mentioned with these variants, especially with media, they love to stir up the fear. It gets them the clicks, it gets them the money. Um, and everywhere you go, you sort of hear these variants are going to be uh, resistant against the vaccine. Um, and and it's reassuring to hear from a bioinformatician themselves that it really can be tackled. It just takes an extra three weeks to, to sort of shift the yeah. level. Yeah, we're tracking uh, globally and locally those mutations, um, particularly the spike protein mutations. Um, and now is about the time with the sheer numbers and time that variants are going to occur. 
as well as possible reinfection because the initial immunity from your first case is wearing off uh, because it's a different type of powerful immunity that compared to a vaccine. Um, none of them have reduced vaccine efficiency to the point where worry. Uh, you know, a 70% 70, 70 vaccine is still a really freaking good vaccine. Um, that doesn't mean we have, don't have to be vigilant that it will mutate in ways that really do degrade. Um, but, uh, and that would actually take a lot of vaccines off the market, but not these messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, so it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a difficult time. It's going to, it's going to be, uh, you know, just to get Canada immunized is going to be a fight, but I think we got 7 million, 7 billion plus people to inject once or twice while the target's changing. It's going to be a real challenge. So what's your, uh, what's your prediction on when we'll be back on campus, when you'll get to see undergrads? Uh, I'm, not that, I'm not that unhopeful about fall, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, there's a lot in the press about why is the vaccine not coming? You know, the, the mRNA is because they're, they're also quick to produce. Uh, that's the other benefit. And they got to the market months earlier than we thought. But of course, production was not fully up and stable. None of this is a surprise. But every single week, another vaccine finishes trials or gets approval, right? This is going to snowball. Um, Canada has been really aggressive on getting those deals. Uh, we could hit, I'm, I, I'm hopefully like before summer, our elderly and our healthcare workers done in the country, but it is possible we could hit max vaccination uh, for a fall term or a modified fall term uh, to a degree. It might be shift work, day and night classes to spread people out still for a little while. Uh, but I'm pretty optimistic. I, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that we could have Thanksgiving and Christmas next year in a normal way. Uh, we're not certainly not going to have summer yet in the normal way. The thing you got to think about that is like, uh, it's not just us, right? So Canada is part of the pool to make sure that we redistribute vaccines to needy countries. Uh, and we had a right to pull from that pool. We're the only country that pulled from that pool. I'm not really comfortable with that. Um, I think we have so many licenses. It's going to take time. And I think taking out of the pool of countries in need is not the right thing to do at this stage, despite the political demand to vaccinate as many as possible. Um, it will only go so fast. And, and so uh, we, we have to avoid being greedy because we're wealthy. Uh, and so it's important to keep that whole perspective in there. But it means no matter how fast Canada goes, we have the rest of the plant to take care of and variants could evolve there too. Um, it's, there's an outside chance that we can mass vaccinate Canada and then have to do it all over again because of another variant that appears in another country. So we can't be too greedy. We can't be too narrow focused. Uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to focus on our elderly and our healthcare. Absolutely. But once we've taken care of our elderly healthcare, maybe we should be thinking about everybody else's elderly and healthcare before we worry about every single Canadian. And I'll put in there, we need to seriously think about the conditions on First Nations, Métis and Innu, right? These are already communities that have traditionally issues with lung, uh, lung diseases. Uh, so they're highly vulnerable. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so touching, touching on sort of trying to tie it all back together and how you've been on Canada's front line and you've sort of seen that exposure to, to genomic surveillance and seeing so many funds being pumped into uh, bioinformatics the last year or so. Where do you see bioinformatics growing or genomics as, as a whole growing in the next 10, 20 years? And what are you hopeful? Yeah. Oh God, you don't even have to go that long way. Yeah, two, three years. Um, so there's, there's a, there was already, genomics was already changing towards miniaturization. So it used to be, you know, big facilities. When I did Giardia, you know, I was a whole factory floor doing it all the time. You now have sequencers, you know, that are about the size that you talk. You got 
instead of relying on the McMasters and the OACRs, uh, we are already purchasing and putting sequencers at the local clinic uh, to do the genomics real time. Um, so now thinks we have almost 40 testing center, you know, groups running testing in Ontario. That means we're gonna try and place sequencing at all 40, which all 40 of them now are going to need support from genomicists and bioinformaticians, especially if they wanna do near real time, right? And as opposed to the five to six days it takes us to do a genome now on a good week, some weeks it's much longer. Um, so that I think you're gonna see Ontario while the premier just announced investment in that very issue. Uh, I'm getting huge numbers of calls and emails saying, who can we hire because we just bought a sequencer and no one knows how to use it or we don't know how to analyze the data. Right now it all flows to me and my group and we analyze it, but that the idea is not to keep that permanent, it's distributed. So you're gonna see the evolution uh, at the epidemiological level, public health sequencing get everywhere. Whether it becomes a diagnostic tool for individual patients, we're a long way from that. Uh, there's a lot of improvements needed. Um, but the demand for data science and, and set aside bioinformatics, like connecting all the clinical data, so true data science of how you put all the clinical records together, that's not done well this pandemic at all. Uh, we just were not ready. So there's going to be a lot of hiring and a revolution in that field too. Um, and so, yeah, I think on orders of six months, 12 months, 18 months, uh, not five, 10 or years, the, the demand is going to be huge. Yeah, and, and definitely I think just the potential in bioinformatics now, I, I feel after this pandemic, it really shined a, a great spotlight on it to make sure that more students actually invest in that and, and recognize the importance of, of genomics as well. Um, I feel like it was such uh, an, an oversight before where people sort of had their, their blinders on, they wanted to work at the lab and they, and I mean, of course, with bioinformatics, you, you have to be at the bench and then transition it to the computer, but so many undergrads especially have those those their, their mindset solely on working at a bench um and it's exciting to see just how much potential there is in bioinformatics growing and i can vouch for for biochemistry three bp3 so if any undergrads are looking to actually uh start their their path in bioinformatics and, and they don't know where to start i i think biochemistry three bp3 dr MacArthur's course is the perfect the, the perfect start and the perfect introduction. It really shows you the potential of bioinformatics. It shows you all the different assets and, and factors that you can use to do mind-boggling things that I wouldn't have even thought an undergrad would or should have access to. Uh, and it's honestly a great opportunity. Um, and, and I think more than ever, I know that you're increasing the capacity for that course moving forward. You bet. I think I think after this pandemic, that's definitely understandable, definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, I tell the, the people that the best bioinformaticians are the ones that have spent time at the bench. I honestly think I'm good at what I do because I worked a long time at the bench. I sell culture sequencing and all the rest. So I, a lot of bioinformaticians aren't at the bench can pitch an experiment was never workable because they've never picked up a pipetter. Um, but now the thing up is true. I think to graduate from a biochem or a biology, uh, you know, you, you, you require to run how to do a Northern, you know, how to do a mass spec, but you should learn how to, uh, the basics of algorithms. Uh, should you know them all? No, but you should have enough trained to understand where they're weak and where they're strong and how to evaluate them. I always tell my graduate students that, you know, especially the ones that are going much more clinical that you, know, you probably, we won't be the bioinformatician. You'll be running the lab work in the clinics, but you'll know who the right type of people to hire because you understand the field and the, to make that team perspective. Science, particularly the biosciences, 
is really becoming a massive effort. It's all about big data generation, whether it's a robotic screening, you know, a thousand molecules, or it's a, you know, an NMR looking at, at a, a whole rat, for example. Um, you know, it's all becoming data science. So it's going to be a team endeavor. Um, and so bioinformatics is that in between, there's also need for pure data sciences and computer engineers and, and all the rest. But bioinformatics are the people that have to be able to talk to both sides of the room uh, and to, to keep their eye on the goal, right, that, that you need at the end. And that course that you talk about, that's kind of the idea, right? We, week by week, we say, okay, this week we're going to talk about, you know, RNA-seq in a metal exposure experiment, right? And, and, and there's a point to it. And we'll talk about the bench as much as the, as the computer. Exactly, exactly. And I think uh, definitely if anyone's listening to, to the podcast and has an interest, I highly, highly recommend taking the course. I don't think there is another third year course that really shows you the potential that, that you can have uh, in the research field, quite like 3DT3. Uh, so definitely check it out if bioinformatics is of any interest to you. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Dr. MacArthur. Honestly, it's been such yeah, a thank you guys to get your insight on COVID, AMR, uh, the, the value of undergrads in your research as well. I know that so many undergrads really don't, don't value their own efforts enough. Um, and, and it's great to, to hear that you're using them and, and you're taking full advantage of all their potential in your lab as well. You bet. Thank you, guys. It was great. So much, Dr. McCarthy. Really appreciate it. And good luck with all the research moving forward. Thank you. Okay. Take care, everybody.